Om Sang Sarasatyai Namaha. May the teacher of the teachers guide and direct us, and may we always honor her with our studies. Namaste, everyone. Welcome to Dharma Talk. I'm Shiv Baba, and I'll be your, your host. On this show, we will explore ways to incorporate the timeless wisdom of Eastern spirituality into our modern lives in secular society. We're going to avoid controversy and sectarianism. There are many valid traditions in the world of Hindu and Buddhist countries and beyond. If you hear something on this show that differs from your received tradition, keep listening to your guru and understand that this show is simply meant as an introduction. My intention is to prove my intention is to provide a point of entry that is accessible to as many people as possible. Once a foundation has been built, there are many thousands of Sanskrit experts and advanced teachers waiting for you. My role is welcoming those who are curious. You don't have to be a Sanskrit scholar to begin a spiritual adventure that will span many lifetimes. Many people live in settings that do not resemble ancient India or Tibet at all. In my neighborhood certainly doesn't. Uh, many people who were not born into Tibetan or Indian culture but have fallen in love with Hindu or Buddhist spirituality often wonder, is it possible to practice these traditions in a setting like urban or suburban America or, or rural America? I'm here to, to share my experience in doing exactly that. One of the things that made my entry into the world of uh, Buddhist and Hindu Tantra more difficult was the relative scarcity of information on the fundamental assumptions of Tantra. There were lots of specific practices, but few bird's-eye views of the cosmology which underlies the traditions. In the home cultures of these traditions, there are social mechanisms for transmitting the big picture but not in the Western world in which I grew up. For example, there is no true analog in the West for the concept of non-duality, which is so fundamental to understanding Tantra. As a Western academic, I like to know what assumptions underlie a worldview or religion. Fortunately, I wasn't the first Westerner to ask these questions. Elaine Danilou spent much of the 20th century as a tantric scholar-practitioner. His writing combines academic rigor with the fruit of years of experience in the spiritual practices of India. His name sits atop a very short list of people who have captured the interior perspective of the Sana Dharma or the universal religion. Danilou carefully documented the practice of seemingly endless variations of this dharma in cultures very different from India. So we know that these teachings will work in a variety of cultural settings. Together, you and I are going to add to the growing body of evidence that these truths are not bound by language, culture, nationality, or any other restraint. By nature, dharma includes all truths and transcends all limitations. I wish to publicly acknowledge my debt to Danilu's work. Without his priming the pump, my Aristotelian brain might have taken a much longer time to fully understand my new, life, my new way of life. So, let's examine the first of these underlying 
assumptions. This is not an academic exercise, because without such a foundation, it is impossible to understand why we meditate, what we meditate about, and what it is supposed to do for us. One example of this involves ethics. If I have a dualistic view of reality, it means that I believe God is fundamentally different from all other beings, and that all beings exist as fully independent individuals. This is a basic assumption in the West. In other words, my world is divided into two categories, self and other. I am going to be inclined to seek benefit for myself and be less concerned with all of those others. But what if I believe that all beings arise from divine consciousness and all eventually return to that unity? My neighbor is a part of the whole, of one essence with all other beings. If I have that view, my neighbor is not another. If I meet, mistreat someone, I have essentially injured myself. There are many implications of non-duality, and we will examine them as we proceed in this course. Let's start with a model that captures the essence of a complex set of truths. Imagine an entity that is unconstrained by name, sex, personality, and even number. From this entity arises all that exists and all that ever could exist. We can call the entity by various names, and we can ascribe explanatory terminology, but the act of describing something necessarily limits that thing. If you think about it, a, a description means this is a thing as distinct from all other things. But this entity doesn't have the ability to be distinct from all other things. All other things arise from the entity. This entity exists in undifferentiated infinity. Even the terms existence and non-existence aren't fully applicable. For this entity transcends even that distinction. It is both neither, it is both and neither. I suppose we could describe it in modern language as a quantum entity of sorts. Uh, some of us will remember from college Schrodinger's cat, uh, and the implication of the theory is that the cat is both alive and dead uh, in a state of uncertainty until you open the box and then you narrow it down to one or the other. Well, we have a Schrodinger's uh, supreme divinity here, in a manner of speaking. It transcends all contradictions, uh, and its unity is such that there is no polarity within it. Um, so from, this, from the mind of this being arises the entire cosmos. This cosmos then becomes a stage on which the karma of beings plays out, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. How did these beings come to exist? That's where our wonderfully oversimplified model comes in. Remember those lava lamps? There was a glass tube filled with oil, 
and when the oil was heated by a light bulb, colored plastic suspended in the oil melts and begins an endless dance of division of small blobs from the whole and their inevitable re reunion back into the largest blob. You, I, and the cat that got into your garbage last week arose from this one, or as some Western writers refer to it, self with a capital S. We become tiny manifestations of infinite potential, of one substance with this entity. From the Upanishads, we know that this entity seems to de desire to experience its creation from every possible perspective. Right now, that entity is perceiving this radio show from the perspective of as many people, as many beings, as are listening. For that matter, if there's a parrot listening in one of our, our listeners' homes, uh, then the entity is perceiving this show as a parrot. But why don't all of these small s selves or beings have observable characteristics of divine perfection? Um, when I go to the market, or, or certainly when I'm unfortunate enough to be in a car on a freeway, I, I, I don't see a lot of perfection around me. I don't see a lot of divine perfection. What accounts, how can we account for this gap between theory and observation? The answer is that this happens because we are ignorant of our true nature. Most of us are convinced that we live in isolation from all other beings, and that we have a large set of limitations. Traditionally, it was the guru who taught students that their limitations were all functions of ignorance. But the secret seems to have escaped. Modern psychologists like Alberto Bandura have amassed evidence that self-perceived self-efficacy in children is predictive of academic and social success years later. In simpler language, that means that when children believe they are capable of success, usually they're successful. From our more Eastern perspective, we would say that those children have successfully shed a cloak of ignorance of their true unlimited potential, at least to some extent. I'm always fascinated to see usually in the literature of the social sciences, evidence arising that's very supportive of this worldview. Um, it would stand to reason if, if we have a set of, of eternal truths that we're looking at here in these traditions collectively, scientists would bump onto these truths from time to time. Um, and I grew up in a scientific family. I was a science student early in undergraduate uh, education. Well, I got a bachelor of science degree, so I was a scientist all the way through. I like science. I embrace it. I see science um, as, as, as a dharmically in, inclined activity, right? Because we're looking for, the scientist is looking for the same, the same thing that the yogi is looking for. He's looking for demonstrable truth. 
the kind of a truth where I can do a study giving aspirin to rats and it has a certain effect on the rats and then a guy in Russia does the same study using my techniques and he has the same result. In these wonderful ancient Eastern traditions, we have that kind of an attitude going back uh, thousands of years. It's an attitude that that has advanced uh, understanding for thousands of years. It's not exactly like the scientific method, but it is a form of collective memory uh, that is subject to revision at different periods in history, where basically human understanding of these truths took a step forward. So it doesn't mean that the earlier forms or earlier understandings were wrong. It meant that we could learn more and have a fuller understanding. So in a way, like science, these Eastern traditions are self-correcting. If, if you learn something in Dharma class and you think that it's not true, it's not a good idea, but you can research it and by experience get a decent idea of whether it's true or not. It's bad research because it's dangerous and it's, it's subjectively unpleasant, but in theory, this is kind of testable. Um, so part of this ignorance is a set of misconceptions about the nature of personalities. If I believe that my personality exists as a thing unto itself, and that it's basically fixed, uh, my opportunities for growth are limited. A, a secular psychologist could see that, but yogis have always known this. Um, here's some example of, of statements that, that betray this belief in a person. We've all been there. This is part of the journey. I don't like beans. I'm no good at math. I can't sit still for meditation. These kinds of statements assume that we are all finished products. In reality, we have all constructed an identity which is decorated with limitations. This process of pasting together a mosaic of arbitrary characteristics and then believing it to be real and unchangeable consumes most of the attention of human beings who have not approached enlightenment. And, and this isn't an either-or, it's a process, right? We're gonna we're gonna start at one spot and we're gonna get we're gonna move forward as much as we can, as often as we can. But it's a growth process. Enlightenment is uh, certainly a, a process rather than, uh, than an event for most of us. There are some notable exceptions, but I think maybe the exceptions prove the rule on that one. Um, fortunately, we have a collective memory of sorts in which is preserved uh, the wisdom and, and the cumulative experience of what? tens of millions, billions of people over vast oceans of time. Uh, the collective memory is preserved in traditions. Uh, it's still passed on by word of mouth through lineages to this day. It's preserved in, in uh, scripture and, and spiritual practices and uh, iconography. And by, by studying these ancient truths and perfecting spiritual exercises, we can shed our illusions, our fears, 
and our false sense of limitations. So when we think about unlimited potential being limited in order for something to be manifested in samsara, in our world, we can imagine a lump of fine clay. If you manipulate the clay into the shape of a duck, it no longer has the potential to look like a bear. Its shape has been limited in such a way that all non-duckness, as it were, has been removed. In order to make the clay duck into a bear, you must first reduce the clay to a shapeless form by kneading, and then form a bear. All beings uh, are then, by nature, limitations of the absolute and infinite. When I want to become, when, when before I could become this. Uh, Everything that wasn't this had to be, to be removed from me, right? And we have taken certain forms, and, and not only physically, we've taken certain forms of attitude, perspective, and belief also. The common thread, the common thread of a great many world religions is the need to begin the spiritual path with humility and pliability. These traits allow the process of kneading the self into a type of formlessness. Long hours of chanting mantras or scripture are common in many ascetic traditions, and I believe this is because of a recognized need to return to a state of primal malleability. Right? We have these practices, and we're going from a specific form that maybe wasn't so useful to us. We weren't so happy that way. It's all going to go into a ball of clay and then be reformed in a more intentional and more adaptive and more proactive and more enlightened way, right? Suffering is going to be minimized. Bliss is going to be maximized. Before, I was an arbitrary construct that had just been kind of patched together. Now, under the guidance of Guru, we take the ball of clay and reform and become something wonderful. Um, so you, you see this commonality among the world religions. There's such an emphasis on puncturing the ego, on developing humility, on developing openness and pliability, welcoming change. And these traits allow the process of kneading the self into a type of formlessness. Um, As long as I cling to my manufactured and arbitrary sense of self, it is not possible to manifest into something better. So I have to be willing to leave the old behind, maybe even abandon it, and start fresh. In my personal case, that malleability came from years of living in monasteries. I spent quite a bit of time in Greek Orthodox monasteries, also spent some time in Russian Orthodox monasteries. Spent some time in a Russian Orthodox seminary. And my spiritual path, uh, well, I guess it was a straight line, but it, I, it, at any given point, I was able, wasn't able to, to imagine what was going to be next. I never imagined as I sat enjoying Kalamata olives in the Greek monastery, uh, oh boy, well, I'm going to be in, in four years, I'm going to be practicing Tibetan Buddhism in a very serious ascetic practice, or 
some years after that, I'll be trading with a, a Hindu guru and aspire to live as a sadhu. Um, but I, I think I think for anybody who starts on the path in, in, in all of its billions of multiple manifestations, what I hear from, from people who, in different traditions around the world, what I hear from people who have, who have started on the path is that life becomes an adventure. Now, it was like that for me. It was like that for so many people that I met. I think that's a natural side effect of of starting in a, in a direction of, of moksha, of looking for liberation and enlightenment. Um, the monasteries were, were an ideal environment for encountering deep truths about reality. All of my past assumptions were re-examined, my attachments were identified, and I began to crave radical transformation into, an, into a highly effective being who lives in divine union with his deity. During those long, cold, lonely nights tending the, the sacred fire, chanting mantras and throwing offerings into the fire, I noticed that I started to feel an emptiness. It seemed that my old personality had burned in the fire somehow, and that this was a completely fresh start, a blank slate, full of potential, infinite potential. And there were a lot of those nights. I was cold and lonely and afraid, and my knees hurt and my back hurt. Uh, and I'd been breathing smoke for eight hours. Um, and scared, too. I was alone, out in the dark, uh, by myself. There were, you know, snakes and, and bats and uh, who knows what. It was, it was scary. It was, it, was, it was a deep, intense loneliness. But then that changed. That sensation of emptiness um, gave way to a sense of unity. And I started to have ideas like, well, even if there are no other people around me, the supreme divinity is all-pervasive. Um, and I'm one with all other beings. So I don't have to feel lonely. I can chant my mantras and finish my practices and focus more of my attention on Shiva or Kali or Hanuman or whoever I'm enjoying some time with. And the, the effect seems to have been permanent because since those since that, that process, that long series of overnight fire sacrifices, I found that I can freely edit my concept of self, of identity. A blank slate has a lot of room for new features. If some aspect of my consciousness isn't adaptive in a given situation, 
I can change it without feeling like I have given away a part of myself. What I'm calling myself is an arbitrary collection of characteristics. I get to edit that whenever I want. Um, at this point, change is as welcome on an ongoing basis as fresh clothes on a hot and sweaty day. Before, I kind of dreaded change. You know, I'd be at work and somebody would say to do something different. And I would do it. Um, but I would feel like, well, oh, but they, had to, they told me what to do. I, I didn't get to decide this. this that with a perspective of unity, you don't have training. You don't have, you don't have bumps in the road like that. And change doesn't mean that I was doing something wrong before. Change means that it's possible that I can do something smarter, better, more efficiently, uh, certainly more harmoniously, right? Get the same effect that... Uh, In, in the years since I've I had this series of experiences, I've met a, a lot of householders and a lot of sannyasi in India who have had the same transformation. Uh, and, and the householders were living in mainstream society. Europe, uh, America, and some of them in South America. And they don't wear saffron garments. They don't live in ashrams. Uh, I've met people from farmers to university professors that have discovered how these ancient truths can be can allow them to live in the world but not of the world. I've spoken, had a wonderful conversation years ago with an accountant, um, and he explained to me how he, you know, he had a busy business day. He was a successful accountant. But he learned how to secretly incorporate mantras into his business day. And then he, he shared with me that he had learned that he could offer the whole day's mundane work as a puja offering to his beloved deity. And so all of a sudden, for this gentleman, the mundane had been transformed in to the richly spiritual, the, the mystical, the, uh, it, it, the mundane was transformed and, and because he had been transformed. I, I hear the same uh, variations on the story from a lot of people over a long period of time. Um, here in, in my neighborhood, there are several devout Buddhist shopkeepers who keep altars in their businesses and cultures the customers walk into the shop and they're immediately greeted with the sight of a tranquil deity being continually bathed in floral incense and it's a glorious experience uh, not every business has a chance to have an overt practice of, of spirituality but it doesn't really matter it can be the beautiful statue of a deity with the incense or it can be silently that with each heartbeat, your mantra beating, your, your heartbeat connection with your deity going all the time. And when there's a tiny break in your business day and things get quiet just for a minute, 
and you can notice the mantra going on deep inside of you. Well, uh, to, to be perfectly honest, if you have that experience in a beautiful ashram in India, that's wonderful. And if you have that experience in an office building in Chicago, uh, that's even more wonderful, right? Because we've, we've, we've taught ourselves that a heartbeat connection with our deities is not something that's ephemeral and, and occasional and I have to do this special ritual and then I'll get to feel kind of close to the deity. Those are really great. I love long pujas. I, I always will love those. It's a treat now. But when I'm at the market and I'm buying rice and, and lentils, spices, and I notice Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. Always going inside of me. Again, we've transcended the mundane. Um, and I don't think you have to be, there's nothing special about me. Uh, I think all beings at one point or another are able to get at least this far. And then I look at the history, I look at the masters, and I know that there's a long way beyond this to go, right? It's, it's a non-ending, never-ending adventure. Not till you, not till you merge back with the, the, the capital S self. That the whole rest of the time is an amazing adventure. And that wasn't my experience of life before I started down the, the path of, you know, sometimes haltingly... Uh, stumbling toward toward moksha setting a compass heading at least that that i thought would correspond with moksha right instead of just chasing the endless chain of desires and and doing what the stuff that doesn't work that doesn't have a subjectively pleasant effect on my life um many people have shared their experience of weaving their spiritual practices into their mundane lives like gold, gold threads woven into plain cloth. Um, invariably, they ref, they report a new sense of meaning in life. Uh, there's a common, always, always here. I felt unity. I felt connected with everything. Um, and there's another the common thread that their their mundane lives are now spiritually significant um then what about the monks well my understanding the my model of the monks is that the monk uh, one of the purposes of a monk's existence is to serve as a living template so that householders can learn the practices the ancient practices of the lineage from a living example and incorporate them into their lives. So you can see how understanding a seemingly obscure bit of ancient dharma can open the doors of possibility. But don't take my word for it. In fact, don't take anyone's word for it. We are at liberty to explore for ourselves. One only needs enough faith to take the first step of the journey. After that, experiences begin to serve as evidence and life takes on a sense of adventure 
One learns to view karma as a feedback mechanism, a navigation device that allows me to understand when I'm going in the best direction or have inadvertently wandered into the wrong direction. That will be the focus of next week's show. We'll talk about deities and karma. We will also have a segment telling you how to build your own mala. It should be quite a lot of fun. In the weeks following that, once we've built our foundation, we will meet some of the deities individually. I'm sure we're all looking forward to the shows devoted to Shiva, Krishna, Hanuman, and all the other famous deities. And we will also talk about the lesser-known deities, like Vayu. I am personally acquainted with a devotee of Lord Vayu, the, the god of the wind. Ancient, second deity mentioned in the Vedas. Very ancient deity. Ancient form of, of an ancient deity, right? But I've met one of his modern worshippers. And, and the gentleman is very happy and lives a very successful life. So maybe something to it. Uh, until then... May the author of happiness bless and guide you all. Om Sang Sarasatya Namaha. Om Namah Shivaya.